the egg that would become the Reformation was actually laid many years before in the 1300s and the 1400s by men with the names of St. Francis of Assisi and John Hus of Bohemia and John Wycliffe of England. By the 1500s, the church was ready, it was ripe for reform, ready for change. By all accounts, the Roman church had become hopelessly corrupt by the year 1500, and whether from internal pressure or external pressure, it was going to be changed. It was going to be reformed. That egg that was laid a number of years before, hundreds of years before, was hatched on October 31st, 1517, by a man named Martin Luther. And Martin Luther was armed with nothing more than a fountain pen and some parchment paper and a nail. And he wrote these 95 theses, these 95 questions, statements of concern about the contemporary church of his day. And he took out a nail and he pounded those 95 theses into the door of the Wittenberg Cathedral in Germany. And the world would never be the same. Over these next three weeks, well, we're going to look at some of the work of Martin Luther and a number of the other, number of the other reformers as we look back on this critical event, this uh, critical time of great change in Western civilization and key theological beliefs that came out of that time in Germany and in Switzerland and in England, which uh, spread like wildfire, not just across Europe, but across North America and the hundreds of years to come and then across the, the entire world. The Reformation can be summarized in five key Latin phrases. I'd like to go through those one after another really, really quickly. These five key Latin phrases were the, the calling card, if you will, of the Reformation fathers. And they were sola scriptura, which means scripture alone. Sola gratia, which means grace alone. Sola fide, which means by faith alone. Sola Christus, which means through Christ alone. And soli Deo Gloria, which means to God's glory alone. These were key uh, foundational statements, first started by Martin Luther, but, but then also a number of other Reformation leaders uh, followed him well, with those statements as well. And they became uh, the, central, the central doctrines, the central beliefs, the central theological ideas that set the course of church history for the next 500 years, and they have become, really in many ways, the cardinal beliefs of our own tradition as well, which we'll talk about a little bit later in the service. Martin Luther was on the path to respectability. His parents were working class peasants. They didn't have much, but Luther was a rare genius who was given a very unique opportunity to go to law school. And in law school, he was a first-class student at the top of his class. But while he was there in law school, law school with this great opportunity that would change the dynamics of his family henceforth, at least that's what they hoped for, he had this lightning conversion experience. He wasn't converted to Christ just yet, but he literally endured a lightning strike very close to him, and he made this promise to God, this vow to God, that if he would be saved, he would go serve the Lord in a monastery. Much to his parents' chagrin, he followed through on that promise. 
And he left what would be a lucrative future to be an impoverished monk in a German Augustinian monastery against his parents' wishes. He studied the Latin Bible, and he became disenchanted there. After a number of years of studying the Latin Bible, he became disenchanted there with the teachings of the Holy Catholic Church. He didn't want to become Protestant, if you will. That word hadn't even been invented. He didn't want to bring a revolution to the church. He didn't hate the church. Indeed, he loved the church. And he wanted to reform it from inside, probably without even using that word reform. The thought of revolution that would split the church actually grieved him. What he wanted was a closed-door meeting with scholars of the Catholic Church to discuss these 95 questions, these points of umbrage that he had with the Catholic Church and the way it was practicing the faith that he was reading about as it was revealed to him in his studies of the Scriptures in the monastery where he lived. The principal reason, the greatest symptom, I should say, the greatest symptom for the Reformation, the greatest outward sign of corruption fought from the church was the selling of indulgences. Raise your hand if you ever heard of that. Selling of indulgences. I see a number of hands raised. Okay, so the selling of indulgences well, was critical to the launch of the Reformation. You're not going to believe this well when I say it, but what was happening in the Catholic Church of the day was the church was selling these sacraments that were called indulgences in order for people to spring their family members out of purgatory after they had died. And they could buy and fall for themselves as well so they could shorten their time or even, if they contributed enough, eliminate their time in purgatory. I'm not kidding. Sadly, this was happening. And obviously that's disgusting, though that's sick. And Martin Luther rebelled against that practice. We'll talk a little bit more about that next week because he said, no, you, you cannot purchase someone from heaven by your money, even if you want to build more cathedrals. But coinciding with this uh, famous launch of his 95 theses was uh, the invention of something else called the Gutenberg Press. Have you heard of that? It preceded the internet. It was responsible for books. The Gutenberg Press was this wonderful invention that allowed Martin Luther's students to take his 95 theses off the Wittenberg door, and unbeknownst to him, as he is seeking a dialogue with the Roman scholars of the day, his students take the theses, they take them to a local printing press, and they print thousands of copies, which are then disseminated across Germany almost overnight. It was like an ancient Twitter blast. And as they were being disseminated, the church takes notice. And all of a sudden, that Twitter blast circulates not only across Germany, but also across England and Switzerland as well. And the church hierarchy is none too happy with this development. Now, ultimately, the fundamental question that led to Reformation, and the key question for us as well to continue to answer today, it was the bedrock question for them to answer back in 1517 was this, what is the bedrock for authority? Where do you get your authority for spiritual things? Okay, where is, where is authority found today? Can we get some talk in church time? At least outside the church, where is authority found today? Where? 
The law, the legal system, where else? Experts, okay. Hollywood, I heard. Okay, there you go, that's good. Politicians, I heard, good. Ultimately, authority is me, myself, and I in a postmodern world. It's I'm going to decide what I want to believe, and I will be the final arbiter of truth. The Bible might say some things. Hollywood, politicians, experts, professors, they might all say some things, but ultimately, I will be the authority over my life. That's the authority question today. In Martin Luther's day, the Catholic Church believed that authority laid in the hands of the Pope and by proxy cardinals and bishops and local priests. It was said that the Pope would speak ex cathedra. And ex cathedra was another Latin phrase to convey this idea that the Pope is infallible. That what he speaks is the very words of God. That he speaks for God and he is the final authority. Reformers believe that above all human authority and tradition, beyond any person or even the self or Hollywood, beyond me, myself, and I, the Word of God is bedrock for authority. Could that still be relevant 500 years later in 2017? I think it could be. What is authority? Where do we get our sense of authority? I would just add that anytime I stand on this stage to proclaim the Word of God, I do all that I possibly can to get it right. I use proper biblical interpretation principles, and I study really hard, and I pray really hard. But I don't get it right 100% of the time. Indeed, I've been corrected. And I've been corrected by the Scriptures on a number of occasions across my ministry. And it seems to me that the height of all pride would be for any man or woman to ever say that they get this right 100% of the time without error. And that's what they were saying at the time of Luther. No, what we say is the Bible is clear and it can be understood, but we need a believing community and we need proper interpretation tools and we do our very best to get it right. But Scripture, no man, no woman is the final authority. Again, when the, Reform when the Reformation began, the Reformers did not despise the Catholic Church. They weren't even looking for Reformation itself. But the Roman Catholic Church at the time of Luther particularly <clears throat> was marked by this exaggerated sense of human traditions and allegiance to councils and allegiance to popes and priests and allegiance even to artwork, all of which held authority over the Word of God. At the time of Luther, many priests didn't know what was in this book, and yet they were responsible for the spiritual nourishment of the people. And so the Reformers, yes, Martin Luther, but also John Calvin and Ulrich Zwingli and Jacob Arminius and others, they recaptured the Scriptures are the rule of authority for life and faith, and they can be read and, understand, read and understood by people like you and me. This is beautiful. This is so empowering. The Reformers taught that ordinary people like us can get together in Bible study and we can read and digest the Scriptures together for ourselves and we can hear from the very voice of God. Here's what governed Martin Luther's thoughts during those early years. You see a quote on the screen that says, For some years now I have read through the Bible twice every year. 
And if you picture the Bible as a mighty tree and every word of it a little branch, I have shaken every one of these branches because I wanted to know what it was and what it meant. That's a pastor. That's what you want from a spiritual leader. Someone who says, this is the very words of God and I'm going to shake the beautiful branches on this great tree and eat from its apples daily. Enjoy it as much as possible and and try to understand all the different details written in it. And Martin Luther memorized the entire book of Psalms. And he read through the Bible twice a year and he shook every branch he could find and he learned Hebrew and Greek. Why? Because he encountered in the scriptures, for example, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. I believe your outline says 1 Timothy 3. That's wrong. It's 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. He encountered verses like this in the scriptures which undermined any human tradition and elevated the authority of the word of God. It says all scripture is God-breathed and it's useful. Every page of scripture is useful for teaching and correcting and rebuking and training us in righteousness so that the servant of God may be fully equipped for every good work that God might bring into our lives. From day one of the Reformation, this was the plea of Martin Luther and his followers, that the Bible has authority over any priest, any pastor, any pope, any person. Over my best opinions are the Scriptures. Do you say that for yourself? Over your best opinions, over any person's opinions, I will submit to the words of the Scriptures. So after a few years of this, the uh, Holy Roman Emperor, the Holy Roman Empire, and the Catholic Church were not too pleased with Luther. You remember at this time, all of that was one and the same. There was this thing called Christendom, where the church and the state were completely intertwined. And can I remind us all that separation of church and state is for the church's benefit? (laughs) You, You look back in church history, you realize it is for the church's benefit that the state would not be intertwined with the church. Things don't go well for the church when that happens. Anyway, another topic for another day. That's what happened there in Luther's day in 1517. They were completely intertwined. And so Luther is called before both the state and the church to give account for his writings. And he appears before Pope Leo and also before Emperor Charles V. And before them both, he is called to give an account for his writings. They uh, convene an assembly And there's a papal bull, which is a ruling that someone would be summoned to appear before this council and before the emperor to give an account for their writings. And so he appears at the city of Worms, Germany. Again, I'm not making this up. I think it's Worms, Germany. And before the emperor and before the pope, who have the power not only to disbar him from his ministry, but also to put him to death. This is the king, this is the pope. This is the Supreme Court. This is the president, all wrapped into one. They have complete power over his life, and they ask him two questions. They lay before him all of his books that he's written, 
And in the four years between 1517 and 1521, Luther wrote 25 books. So they put his 25 books and his 95 theses in front of him, and they asked him these two questions. Mr. Luther, number one, are these your books? And number two, do you recant what was written in them? And he says, I can't answer that right now. Could you give me a day? They give him a day to think about it. And he prays, and he goes into his chamber, and he's alone, he's crying out to God, Ask God, well, what to do? He comes back a day later and appears before the same council. And he said the following. Unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe, here I stand, I can do no other, God help me, amen. Amen? Wow. I mean, if you can imagine this, he is overcome with fear in this moment, but he refuses to allow his fear to overcome him. He is sweating all over his body. He is sh shivering with dread as he looks into the eyes of people who have the power to kill him. And he says, I will not allow my fears to overcome me. I cannot disobey conscience. I cannot disobey the word of God. Here I stand. Do with me what you will. I do not fear any man. I live before God. Wow. Nothing makes me stand stronger than men of courage. Mm. And so, the council goes away, and they're ready to convene on what his sentence will be. His sentence will be death. But before they can come back and get him and kill him, there's a private German army that secrets him away in the middle of the night into a castle in Germany called Wartburg. This private German, German army provides him with protection. He goes to the Wartburg Castle where he lives out the number of additional years, the next many, many years in hiding. He eventually gets married, but he lives them out in seclusion from the Holy Catholic Church. And while he's in this castle in Wartburg, Germany, he spends his days uh, eating great food and dr drinking his own homemade beer and uh, gaining too much weight, and uh, fighting with the devil. And most importantly, he spends his years translating the Bible from ancient Hebrew and ancient Greek to the German language of the day so that his own people could read it for themselves. Luther was spared. Others took up his protest, and the martyrs from this period were were many. There were many, many people who followed Luther who were burned at the stake, who were killed because of their commitment to the gospel of salvation by grace through faith and the authority of the scriptures alone. Why? Why did they go to such lengths? It's because they found in Scripture itself, and they believed it to be true through reason and history. 2 Timothy 3.16. Let's read this out loud together from the screen. You've already heard it once. Would you join me? 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness 
so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Again, this is one of those self-claims of the Bible, though, that speaks of the Bible's authority. It's saying the Bible's inspired by God. Perhaps an even better word for this would be it is expired. God breathed his very life on the words of Scripture. He incarnated his Son, who's the living word, and then he gave us his word, his scriptures, the Bible, which are the written, the written word. He expired his word into human authors, and through their unique personalities, he carried them along by the power of the Holy Spirit, such that the Bible that we have today is useful across the board. It teaches us. It corrects us. It affirms us. It blesses us. It trains us in righteousness. It equips us for all kinds of good works of service that God might give to you and to me. And sometimes, yes, it even rebukes us, doesn't it? Sometimes it knocks us, knocks us across the head and just kind of says, oh, you got that wrong. Conform your life to this. And this is part of Luther's great legacy to the universal church. While popes and councils and traditions will contradict one another, we possessed the unchanging gift of God's word that is always profitable for all of life. That doesn't mean that it'll always be easy. It doesn't mean that we will always understand every phrase or every verse that's written in the scriptures. Sometimes we won't. There are times that the Bible is hard to understand. Would you agree? Now, when you get to those verses that are hard to understand, it's really easy to just kind of skip over those. Anyone else? Imagine they're not there. What I would encourage you to do instead of skipping over them is apply another Reformation principle, which is Scripture interprets Scripture. And so you can go to another number of passages that speak to that very same issue and ask God, would you please teach me through these other passages that speak to this fuzzy issue that I'm not yet understanding? Or you go to a teacher, you go to your Bible study, you go to your life group, and we interpret the Word of God together in community. And sometimes it'll still be difficult to, to understand, but the main and plain things far from the Scriptures can easily be understood by most all of us, and it, not us, is the measuring rod for authority. Now, when we say Scripture alone, what we're not saying is that the Bible speaks to everything. Sometimes Christians say that, and that just makes us sound silly. It doesn't speak to dinosaurs, does it? It doesn't speak to Facebook or football or lots of little things like that. But when we say Scripture alone, we say it is the final authority for all of life. It's the final authority for salvation. It's the final authority for the direction of our families. It would lead our conscience. It would take our conscience captive. And it has final say-so, not me, not my parents, not any traditions. Now, the critical application related to us today is this, that inevitably when institutions or churches or families or individuals get their hearts and their minds deeply into the Bible, here's what happens. Revelation leads to reformation. This is what happened in the church historically. Revelation from the words of God led the church to reformation. 
And so it is with us in our families or in our lives individually. The Bible is sharper than any double-edged sword able to divide the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. It's able to convict us of our sin. Indeed, when we hide it in our hearts, it's able to prevent us from sinning. It's able to lead our families. It's able to set an anchor in the midst of very, very difficult times. I promise you this. There has been nothing in my life that has been more potent for bringing about reformation than a steady diet of the scriptures. Meditating on the word, reading through the Bible regularly, reading through the New Testament at the very least each and every year, memorizing portions of scripture time and time again. Revelation leads to reformation. Sometimes pastors don't, sometimes people think that pastors don't go through the same stuff that you guys go through. You've been through abuse? Me too. The revelation of God has led to reformation in me. You've struggled with identity issues. You struggled to believe that you could be loved. Struggled to believe that you matter to God? Me too. The revelation of God's word has led to a reformation in my soul. You struggle with lust. You struggle with envy. You struggle with pride, you struggle with greed, you struggle with any of those, you struggle with impatience, you name it. There is no temptation that is common to any one of us that is not common to all of us. Can I get an amen? I mean, the things that we struggle with, everyone around you also struggles with them. But as you get the words of God into your soul, as you chew on them and meditate on them and regurgitate them like a, chow, like a cow chewing its cud, Get it in you. As you get it in you, it leads to personal reformation. It has across all of the centuries. It did in the Bible itself. It certainly did at the time of the Reformation, of the Reformation and is still doing so for us today. Friends, what I'm talking about here is world history, but it's also our own personal history, and it's also our church history. Revelation has led to reformation here at this church. Since I got here a little bit, over, little bit over two years ago, it's been on my heart to speak a little bit about the great history that Carney Ephri has. I'm not sure if you know this, our church has grown a lot, and so over the past years, you may not know some of the great history that this church has. And it's really, really beautiful the way God has shepherded our church across many difficult seasons, across many generations. And I want to just share a few details with you and then share with you a video though that we produced here at the church that speaks of our church history which is almost 130 years old. Carney Ephri Church was initially started not under any name but by a group of Swedish immigrant farmers who came to Kearney, Nebraska in 1888 to escape overarching government rule upon the church in Sweden way back in the 1800s. And they came to Kearney, Nebraska, and they started a number of home fellowships where they would study the Bible together. And after 11 years of doing that, in 1899, they decided to incorporate into a church under the Swedish Free Church of America, or the, the Swedish Evangelical Church. And their initial name in 1899 was the Swedish Free Missionary Assembly. If you ever thought Kearney Evangelical Free Church of America was hard to say, say Swedish Free Missionary Assembly five times fast. Services were uh, 
exclusively in Swedish for the first 30 years and predominantly in Swedish for the first 50 years. I could not be the pastor there. This is a songbook that was lent to me from a tent revival. It might be falling apart as I open it up. <clears throat> for the Swedish Free Missionary Assembly dated to 1900. And this songbook says, Hemlands clocken, vaklas ak, upen gaken maken, ak hemet, for Nebraska. Got any Swedish speakers in here? Okay, we've lost a little part of our history there. But this was part of their tent revival in 1900. In 1950, it was incorporated as the Evangelical Free Church of America, and by that time, all of the services were in English. But from the very beginning of the Evangelical Free Church of America and the Swedish church, we stood on these Reformation principles. Scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, for God's glory alone. I want to show you this video that speaks to the way our church has survived difficult times, the way it's thrived through some difficult times, and the way God has been able to sustain, sustain us as we, as a church, have maintained our focus across all these years on the Word of God. Take a look. Nearly 70 years ago, in June of 1950, the Evangelical Free Church of America was founded on the belief in the inerrancy of the Bible, the Trinity and the atonement through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The EFCA was born through a merging of the Swedish and the Norwegian Danish Evry Church Associations. And the Swedish Evry Church is where Carney Evry finds its roots. It goes all the way back to 1888 when immigrant Swedish families held worship services together in their homes. Then in 1899, they decided to officially form a church and there were 31 charter members. In 1910, on the 40th anniversary report, which was written in Swedish, there were 57 names on the books. And at that time, they decided, with the growth of the church, that they were going to build a new, bigger building. And that one cost $2,700, and it's where the current Kentucky Fried Chicken is. In 1912, the church discontinued because of strife between members, and it actually closed from 1912 to 1924. Then in 1929, they called a special meeting that they would call a full-time pastor. They called these the Five Faithful Women, and they were Mrs. Lundberg, Mrs. Tilda Runquist, Mabel Bloomquist, Anna Bloomquist, and Mrs. Winnie Hag. In 1932, on August 15th, they accepted the title, officially, of the Evangelical Free Church of Kearney. Formerly, it was the Swedish Mission Church. Services were only spoken in Swedish until 1929, when English was allowed on the first and the third Sundays of every month. It was during those first years where Ifri first experienced some financial hardship. But, and it was before our time even, when they still had the church where Kentucky Fried Chicken is, you've heard that story, 
Well, there were two single ladies, the Nelson sister, we call them, Theodora and Marie. And Theodora was a college professor and Marie taught it at uh, one of the elementary schools. And I think it was Marie that was the, the secretary treasurer of the church or something like that, one of those. Anyway, they knew where the money it was, came in and how it went out. And when there wasn't enough money to pay the bills, the Nelson sisters paid the bills to keep the church going. It was pretty rocky as far as we know. From what we understand, there wouldn't be much history after yeah, that yeah. if it hadn't been for that. Thanks to the Nelson sisters and the faithful congregation, the church grew rapidly to over 50 members and eventually had to expand to a new location by Harmon Park. Yeah, it was just a small sanctuary. Of course, at that time, we just had the one Sunday morning service, so I've seen that transition. And, uh, you know, we were part of that. I think I was, if I remember right, I was Sunday school superintendent or, or education chairman when, uh, when we went to two Sunday schools. Man, that was major, you know. <laughs> so, and two services, too, to see that transition. You know, is this going to work? You know, oh, man, it'll be just, just small. But so we've seen it grow from from that point to where it is now. But I remember a lot of hardships too that the church went through. Um, when Jeannie Swanson died and when Mitch Lammers died, um, little Andrea Kelly was born just really small. And I remember that it was more like family. I mean, what happened to their families happened to your families too. And I can remember, I think it was at uh, Jeannie's funeral that my mom had got down on her knees and she was turned around in the pew, she'd taken off her glasses and she was crying and you know it's like everybody was there for everybody, for everything. It used to be, you know, when there was a hundred people you knew everybody. You knew their kids, what they did for a living, you know, where they hung out. You know, it was, it was, I think that's why the small groups are so important today is because we are so big. It's been wonderful to see it grow like this but you almost have to be in a small group anymore to have that feeling of knowing people and their families. Yeah, at that time we had Wednesday night church and Sunday night church, but we didn't have small groups. And small groups are one of the things that we enjoy most right now about the church. And anyone out there that isn't in one should be. So <laughs> Another thing, you know, when back then I wore a suit to church. Right. Uh, we were always dressed up. Uh, and I kind of like the relaxed atmosphere we have today compared to back then, uh, for that point of view. Because, you know, you, it's not how you dress, it's why you're here, it's what's important. And I think the relaxed atmosphere brings more people in. Especially young people, and that's, that's, that's something that's that we need to think of, you know, for the younger generation. Like, he wouldn't have worn shorts back then. I wouldn't have worn jeans, but... You know, it's, it's great when you see these young couples or uh, college kids come in jeans and they are relaxed. And then our ministers make it relaxing for us too. Okay, what I see is a lot of it is the same because throughout the 55 years we've been here, the sermons have always been based on the Bible. And I think you could take the sermons from any of the eras and have them today, and today's would have been just as relevant back then. So that hasn't changed. 
the number of people and the electronics and the loudness <laughs> is what has changed, I think. And I don't know, the, it's about the same with the young people. That's what I really enjoy seeing today, you know, is all the young couples and the young families that we have in here because that's what it's all about. You know, like Jan mentioned, the hymns, I'd love to have more of hymns, let's face it. You know, <laughs> but I have plenty. I wake up in the middle of the night with one of my heads, so you know, that's good to have. But, uh, you know, the, the new praise uh, songs and that kind of thing, I, I like those too. So that's one change that we've seen. Yeah. But, you know, that's, what some of the young ones like, and that's what it's all about. I think another thing that amazes me is the number of people we've seen come to Christ here at this church. It's, it's unbelievable. And we've had some really great pastors over the years. It's been, it's been fun. We've had bad times. Over the years, Carney Efree has had its fair share of struggles and hardships, times of disagreements and negativity. But through God's grace, we were able to overcome and grow closer together as a church. Well, probably 15, 20 years ago or so, uh, some turmoil in the church because of misunderstandings among people and um, some hard feelings. And some people left the church. The church board felt that this had gone on long enough, that uh, the turmoil, the misunderstandings, the disunity, and um, one of us mentioned um, in the Jubilee year that's talked about in the Old Testament, debts are forgiven, um, land is turned back, you know, it's a new, a fresh start. And we felt like even though it might not have been a 50 year struggle, <laughs> It felt like it, and so uh, we just decided we needed to have a uh, a time of re renewal and confession and uh, forgiveness, and so we uh, decided to do a Jubilee Sunday. And our goal with that, and I'll just read some of the things, the questions that we um, we had a sheet like this that was handed up to everyone who came that had some questions that or comments that they would make just between them and God and write down their thoughts and then at the end of the service we had a fire pit out north of the church where uh, you could take everything you'd written down your uh, confession of your sins your the people you were may have had hard feelings against or that you had maybe hurt that you needed to go reconcile with, all of that stuff that you wrote down between you and God, and you could take it out and uh, put it in the incinerator, and then each person had gotten a, um, a rock that when they entered the church, that then way you would take around and put it in the pile for a, a remembrance of what we had just done. We just felt an immediate um, change of heart among the congregation. And it just seemed like a whole fresh start. God truly blessed that, that Sunday. And uh, I've not seen anything of disunity ever since there in the church. And so God was pleased. 
And over the last several years, we've experienced incredible growth as we've come alongside future generations. Many times we would go into a church where there were adults. And more of many us adults and no children. Older adults. But when we come here, we see kids. If there are children here, there are young adults here that care enough about their relationship with God and about their children's relationship with God to bring them to church. And to me, that says that, that they want to grow and they, in their experience with God and they also want their children to grow in that relationship. So therefore, therefore, as long as they stick around and you all, there's always a percentage that remain in Kearney, then they will be the future of the church. Very encouraged to see the young people that we have here, the young kids we have in Sunday school. Palm Sunday, I couldn't believe how many little kids attend here. And that is really encouraging to me. Like I said, it's good uh, to see the young ones now because they're making the history. You know, 50 years, some of you youngins out there will be thinking back and you'll be doing the same thing we are, I hope, because yeah. I can't believe that this church would ever Unless the Lord Go comes back. Hmm? Unless the yeah, Lord that, comes back. Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> We're okay yeah, with that. We'll take that. <laughs>
to generation. To God be the glory.